You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, hey, good morning. My name is Alex Cook. I am the student pastor here at North Canton Chapel. Um, I want to give a special shout out, first and foremost, to my amazing mom, uh, my amazing mother-in-law, and of course, the mother of my children, Casey. Um, Love you guys so much. Special shout out to you guys. So, we are in our third week of our series called Cross Reference. And this is designed to be a basic but helpful dive into the theology of Christ. Right? Today we're going to take a little bit of a closer look of why Jesus had to live a human life. Why did Jesus have to live a human life and put on skin and flesh and bone? But before we start talking about theology, I want to ask you guys a few questions. I want you guys to think of these, think of your answers and kind of keep them tucked away for later. All right, here's the first question. Who is the most loving person you know? Think about that person. Who is the most loving person that you know? And P.S., you don't, you don't have to say mom. You don't have to thank mom just because Mother's Day. But maybe. Question number two. Who is the most encouraging person that you know? Think of that person, just super encouraging. That person that you just know, when you're face-to-face with them, they're just, they're just going to encourage you, 100% of the time. Third question, who is the most empathetic person you know? Think about that. When you're going through a difficult time, and that's that person you know you just want to go to because they're going be, to be empathetic towards you. They're going to get it. Fourth question, Who knows you the most? Who knows you the deepest? When you think of that person, it's like, man, they know some things about me that's that's deep that nobody else might know in this entire world. Think of these people. I want you to file these away for a little bit later. Ironically, yesterday I was kind of practicing my message at home, and I don't know if you guys know what my household's like. We have three children who are uh, four and under, which is pretty insane. So it's just like debris flying everywhere. Like my youngest daughter's hanging from the ceiling fan, just like going around. Like the refrigerator just bashes on the ground. Like it's just chaos. And in the moment, I'm just kind of talking through. I'm thinking no one's even listening. I'm just kind of speaking these words, and just Casey's over there making food or something. She's like, I'm listening, dear. I'm listening. And I'm like, whatever. Um, so I ask these questions, and then Sonora comes up as I'm starting to ask these questions when I'm practicing again. And I say, who's the most loving person you know? She's like, God. I'm like, yeah, like, that's right. But it, like, person, you know? And then I say the next question, who's the most encouraging person you know? She's like, God. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You're one of those, aren't you? <laughs> Third question, who's the most important? She's like, God. I'm like, all right, all right, we're done here. Like, but you know what, Sonora? I was like, you're, you're right. So I am proud of you for that. So, all right, um, all right, back to theology. And everybody uh, in here was like, yes, back to theology. All the nerds in here are like, yes, let's get this thing, theology. 
So Brandon, I think, did a really, really good job of sort of unpacking um, the importance of theology, because it is a word that some people in this room and some people just across the map are just like, ah, oh, theology. It kind of seems like this, this kind of this weird word that some people love, some people don't. And, and, and mostly you're on one of those two spectrums. Not many people are in the middle like, yeah, it's kind of good, but eh, it's kind of whatever. Um, but Brandon did an awesome job of kind of unpacking the reason and importance for theology. Number one, to know, to know Christ. To actually know who Jesus is. To grow in Christ. To grow in your relationship with Jesus. To be a light. So when you go out to the world, to actually be a light and do the things that Jesus is calling us to do. And he also talked about the fact that everybody is a theologian. Everybody in this room is a theologian. And you're like, what? I don't... That's not really me, but he, wanted, he went on to say that your theology starts somewhere. However you think about God, however you sort of process all these big questions in life, that's where your theology sort of starts, and that your theology leads you somewhere. So the way you answer these questions, the way you sort of um, get into these things, these, these questions of life, they lead you somewhere. But what if you're in this room, or maybe you're online, and you have a personality type that's similar to mine? Because what I can tend to do is this. It's like, okay, theology, okay, cool. Like, that's, that's awesome. But I want to, like, I want to get off the sidelines. Like, I want to I get into the game, and I just, I, I don't want to just know the playbook really good, but I want to get into the game and, like, actually do what Jesus is calling me to do. So maybe you've, you've been here and you've either thought or maybe said one of these four objections to theology. The first objection looks like this. Theology is a killjoy. So you and your small group are having an amazing conversation on how Christ has just radically transformed your life. And all of a sudden, here comes Billy Buzzkill wanting to talk about original sin and eschatology. And you're just like, oh, dude, come on. It's kind of like this. You and your friends are playing a pickup game of basketball, and you just get right into it. You're all excited, like, let's just play. Let's get in here. And then all of a sudden, like, Johnny Rulebook stops the game and has to explain all the rules before you start. And you're just like, dude, come on. Or maybe you're jamming and playing music with your bandmates when Cindy Juilliard starts talking about music theory and just, like, all the energy and passion just sucked out of the room. You're like, ugh. I'm really, really sorry if any, of, if any of you are like that in this room. My apologies. So that's the first kind of objection. That light is also, he's not, he's not, he's not too thrilled about this message either. There are all the lights. All right. We're just going to pretend this giant flashing light's not actually happening right now. All right, so the second objection looks like this. Theology just divides people. It's divisive. And this objection even has a slogan. Jesus unites, but theology divides. And maybe you're in this room, and that's, that's actually been true for you. We've all witnessed this before. Two people enter into a conversation about the deep things of Christianity, and soon their voices start to elevate. Blood starts pumping. Maybe even shouting and insults start to fly. And then it ends with someone flipping a desk and walking out of Brandon's office. <laughs> totally messing. Love you, Brandon. 
But seriously, instead of unifying brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes theological arguments can then turn into ugly debates that make a public mockery of the Christian faith. Third one is this, useless information. Has anybody ever, you guys ever watched Jeopardy? Anybody out there big Jeopardy fans? I'm like a huge Jeopardy fan. Um, I, like I get like one eighth of all the questions right if I'm lucky, but I'm still think I like walk out like I just accomplished something because I got three answers right. But you watch these people answer these questions, and, and sometimes you think, like, do these people literally just sit in a room all day in front of a computer or this, one of those giant libraries and just study useless facts? Because they know everything about everything, but it's all useless facts. There's nothing in there that, you can, that they could take away that's going to, like, help their life. Just a bunch of useless facts. Theology can seem like that. That's nice. You know all about Arminianism and Calvinism. You have the Nicene Creed memorized. But how does that help me in my marriage or my porn addiction right now? The last one is this, holy arrogance. Sometimes it's tempting to just the theology as a weapon people wield to get power and influence. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe for some of you, the most theologically savvy people you know also happen to be the most arrogant jerks you know, too. And that's a shame. But what if I told you that instead of theology being a killjoy, that it could actually stir your affection so deep for following Christ that you would actually be willing to take up your cross with joy and gladness and follow Jesus? In fact, in Acts 5, 41, it says this, Then the apostles, or then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And the reason they were able to do this with joy and gladness and rejoicing is because they had a deep understanding of who Jesus is. So what if I told you that with the right heart, Theology can actually bring relationships into greater union and harmony. Especially those of us in this room. It could bring us into greater unity together as the body. What if I said that instead of being useless information, theology can actually make the truths of the gospel far more beautiful and sweeter than we could ever imagine? And that theology and arrogance cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. But in fact, theology humbles us and keeps the gospel of Jesus at the forefront of our minds, our actions, and our motives. Theology can do these things. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says this. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Arrogance and theology, a closeness with the Lord, cannot coexist. I'm going to tell you a story. So when I first became a Christian, um, I didn't know anything about Jesus, like theology. I hadn't even heard of that word in my entire life. And it was like, all right, uh, I don't know anything. I, I know how to spell Jesus, and I can kind of, I, I know what the gospel is because it saved me. But like, other than that, I don't know any other information. And I remember this guy who was discipling me, uh, Ron, he, he would meet with me, and he'd be talking about all these, these, like, these Christian words that were like Chinese to me. Like, I had no idea what he was talking about, like sanctification, justification. I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're saying right now. And I remember, it, I just thought, man, like, this guy is just kind of like this theology nerd. Like, we're not going to really jive at all. He's, like, talking all this deep information. I don't even know what I'm doing in my life right now. Like, this is crazy. Just a bunch of useless information. And I really didn't enjoy the religious jargon. And it almost, like, it almost put a wedge in between him and I because I was just like, dude, like, this religious jargon, like, can't you just be real? And it, made, it just put a, a sour taste in my tongue. Until one day, he made me read a book on biblical theology, which I was super excited to read. He made me read this book, and I realized it wasn't about the fancy words, but it was about what those fancy words revealed about the depths and the beauty of Jesus and the incredible story of redemption. And then those words started to mean a lot more to me than just religious jargon. I didn't feel further from God because of theology. I felt closer to him. I felt more alive and delighted to give him my entire life. So for me, that's why I care about theology, and that's why I'm actually passionate about it. So let God maybe change the narrative in your heart on this divisive word, theology. Let him change the narrative in your heart of how you think about God. And don't be afraid to go deeper. Thank you, Micah. Let's give it up for Micah. Thank you, brother. Woo! Servant of the Lord right here. He knew. He saw it, and he's like, I got to get this thing. All right. Now we can. All right, my message is basically starting now. All right, so luckily for you, I'm done talking about theology. Awesome. You're like, all right, sweet. That, like, helped me um, not have to hear that. So I'm done on this theology soapbox. Now let's tackle this important question, why did Jesus have to live a human life? And I personally think this is actually a really, really good question, because think about it for a second. Why did God have to put on flesh, come down here, and interact with a bunch of crazy people like us? Like, Why did God of the universe have to do that? Couldn't Jesus have just stayed in the heavenly places and snapped his fingers, and just like in creation, just make everything okay? Make everything better? Couldn't he just been like, Sin's fixed. People can go to heaven. Couldn't that, like, couldn't that have happened? Why the infant Jesus in diapers? Why the gurgling, hungry belly? Let there be light. Why the tears? Why the laughter? Why the whole pierced hands? Was it all necessary? Surely there could have been an easier way than God of the flesh, God in the flesh coming down with us. So this brings us to this question, what does this doctrine mean? 
So we're going to be talking about like the what behind all of this now. What does it mean that Jesus was a physical human being? What does that actually mean for us? And in the most simplest of ways, Jesus becoming a human being is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, only with just a few caveats. Number one, despite his personhood as a human, Jesus was, in, in, uh, Jesus was indeed still fully divine. Just because he put on flesh doesn't mean that Jesus was still not fully divine. He didn't grow into his deity as he, as he grew up. He has been fully God in eternity past and will be fully God for an eternal future. And the second is this. Jesus, he was sinless. He was sinless as a human being and he was actually born without a sin nature. You and I are born with a sin nature. And we sin from an early age. Trust me, I have three daughters. Didn't take long for me to realize, like, yeah, we are, uh, we're sinners, that's for sure. Hebrews 7.26 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus. But in every other possible way, Jesus shares with us and shared with us what it's like to be a human being. He was hungry. He was tired. He felt pain. He was sad. He weeped. He laughed. He had tears. He felt joy. All these things that we feel Jesus felt. I love what Wayne Grudem says about Jesus' humanity, this, this incarnation. This is a little bit heady, but I want you guys to just try to, try to follow along with this and see what he's trying to tell us. He says this, It may be easy for us to lose sight of what is actually taught in Scripture. It is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even, the, even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. What is he saying? He's saying the most incredible, mysterious, like, um, crazy like miracle that we could ever witness is that God and the God who is in the heavens who created all things God who is God over everything would come down and humble himself and wear a diaper and have to be fed and have to cry and feel pain and, and fatigue and all these things that's a bold statement to say and obviously, there's no way to like really quantify, like, well, this miracle was like a seven on the scale, and this one. But just think about it for a moment, that God of the universe came down to be with us. That should blow our minds. Think about that fact. So here's the second thing. Why is this doctrine important? 
So that's, that's, that's great to understand, like, what Jesus, like, how he was a human, and, like, oh, that's great. Jesus was a human. He felt these things, like, all this thing. But, like, why did he have to do this? Why did Jesus have to live a human life? And I think this is a question that many, many people have. Like, why did Jesus actually have to live a human life? Couldn't he have just been, like, boom, you're just there, Jesus, as a, as a man. You do the thing. Let's say, like, why did he have to, to actually be a human being, a man? So let's take a, a deeper look at Hebrews chapter 4 to see what the author says about Jesus. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I want you to stay with me real quick as we sort of unpack all of this, because all of this really, really matters. Some of these words kind of sound deep, but I promise you all these things matters, and it sheds light on the beauty of Christ. When we, when we talk about these things and when we dive into the importance of these things, we're going to walk away with such a, a rich understanding of who Jesus is that we're just going to naturally love him more. So the text is saying that we have a great high priest, and it is, it is Jesus. But to truly understand like this whole, uh, this whole thing, we have to know what a high priest is. What was a high priest in these days? That's something we don't, we don't talk about, we don't think about in our culture. And why was this high priest important um, to the people in Israel, and why did they need a high priest? What was the reason behind needing a high priest? So the high priests were like the supreme religious leaders of the Israelites. And among other things, the most important duty that a high priest would do is conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. All right? So once a year, to make atonement for himself and the people's sins, the high priest had to enter the most holy place behind the veil, same veil that tore during the crucifixion of Jesus. And he had to sprinkle the blood of the spotless sacrifice on the mercy seat, God's throne, and the Holy of Holies. And if you're thinking, that, like, that's crazy. That sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. Like, when I first read that in Scripture, I'm like, is this, like, part of an Indiana Jones, like, movie script or something? Like, the Holy of Holies, sprinkling blood on stuff? Like, what is happening right now? But this, in essence, would make the people right with God. The priest, the high priest stepping in and doing this would make the Israelites, the Jewish people, right with God. And then in comes Jesus, being the perfect high priest. He would make final atonement for sins by sacrificing himself on a cross for sinful people. We're going to dive deeper into that next week as Brandon kind of unpacks that. But the question is, again, why? Why is Jesus' high priestness important and significant for us today in 2022? So among many reasons of why that is important, we're going to unpack three reasons that I want you to really consider this morning. Reason number one is this, to reveal God. To reveal who God is. John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see that the, the, the Word was God, right? It's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is God. It's just defining it right there in the first chapter of John. Jesus is God, all right? And then what does it say? And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, like uh, Brandon said last week, he moved into the neighborhood. So Jesus is able to reveal who God is because he is God. He's able to reveal these things to us through this word in his life because he actually is God and he has authority to do that. So everything he says and everything he does reveals the nature and character of God. Everything. Jesus even says to Philip in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I can't imagine how bold that statement was then. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus wasn't a scholar on God. He wasn't just talking about God and listing these facts like, oh, God might be like this, he might be like that, or he is like this, he is like that. And he didn't just point people to God. Jesus is God. He is God. Did you know, did you know that scientists estimate that when you look up in the sky on a clear night, that the human eye could see about 6,000 stars tops. You look up there on a clear night, and I live in East Can, out in the middle of nowhere, and we see a lot of stars. So the, the, at the best possible night, I could look up and see 6,000 stars. 6,000 stars, that's crazy, that's a lot of stars. But did you know that scientists also estimate that there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way? 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is our galaxy. They also estimate that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. 2 trillion Milky Way galaxies in the universe. Our minds can't even comprehend the, the number trillion. There's 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. So by estimates, there are 2 hundred billion trillion stars in the universe. Like that doesn't even, that doesn't even register up here. I don't even know what that means. So I'm going to show you guys. That's, that's how many stars, that's the low estimate of how many stars there might be in this universe by scientists. That's the number right there. The God who created all 200 billion trillion stars and every single tiny molecule in creation had conversations with prostitutes and demon-possessed people. Let that sink in for a second. The God who created that many of our sons had conversations with prostitutes and demon-possessed people and lepers and people that society cast away. God did that. Not just a man, but God. Reason number two, to demonstrate sinlessness and to earn righteousness for us. 
This is kind of a compound reason. So let's go back to Hebrews 4.15, track with me for a little bit. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So on one hand, Jesus gives us this perfect example of what it looks like to live a, a sinless life, right? He gives us this example. And on the other hand, um, he was the only one that could, that could do this. He, could, he was the only one that could make atonement for our sins and to earn this righteousness because we are all sinners. And unless Jesus does this, hear me, church, unless Jesus does this for us, becomes a man and does this, the result of that is that every single person in this room, every single person on this earth and that has ever lived is destined for hell for eternity. That's, that's a fact if Jesus doesn't do this for us. So follow me as we break this down. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned. We deserve death. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there had to be shedding of blood for this forgiveness that you and I need. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus' blood was precious and it was perfect. In Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says this, In you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So because of the shedding of this perfect sacrifice who Jesus is, like the whole reason that the, the high priest back in the day, like the whole reason they existed was pointing to this exact moment that the shedding of perfect sacrifice, Jesus, so that we could have redemption. What they did was pointing to the day when Jesus died on the cross to die for us, to be the sacrifice so that you and I could live with him someday forever and have redemption. And Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So part of this justification is this word imputation of his righteousness to us. Or in other words, he ascribes his righteousness to us by virtue of what he accomplished not what we accomplished. We accomplished death. Jesus accomplishes victory. But why is it that sometimes we still have the mindset that God sees us as scum? Why is it that yesterday, as I'm practicing this, I'm reflecting on my own life, and I'm like, oh, man, like, who am I to be up to, to speak your word, God? I feel like scum. When actually, if we are in Christ, the Father sees Jesus' righteousness when he looks at us. And that right there is a fact that cannot be undone for those of you, those of us who are in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. That's mind-blowing. 
because I know my life. I know my thoughts. I know my heart. We get to walk in victory because of what Jesus has accomplished at Calvary. Brandon's going to be going um, much more in depth next week as he tackles the crucifixion and why Jesus had to die. Uh, He's going to explain it much more uh, better than I just did. And I'm excited for that, in case I confused you guys. So reason number three, and this is is the last reason that we are really going to camp out for a little bit on. I want you guys to really consider the next few moments of us together. Third reason is this. Jesus can empathize with us. Jesus can empathize with us. Hebrews 4.15 again says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Did you know that Jesus had actual relationships with actual human beings? Did you know that he had actual emotions? He actually shed tears? Jesus dealt with actual temptations. The same kind of temptations that we deal with today, he actually did. And he actually suffered and he actually walked with people who were also suffering. Jesus feels with his people. Because he's a high priest who can empathize. He actually feels with us. It's one thing to see pain. Hear me. It's one thing to see pain. But it's another thing to have felt pain, too. Have you ever noticed how you can feel close to someone who shared the same tragedy as you, even if you barely know them? There's this deep connection over this pain, this grief. I've seen people who have lost spouses or children or parents connect with each other deeply because they understand together. They understand what it feels like to go through this. It's the power of I understand. I've been there too. I've walked where you've walked. My heart has been broken like yours has too. I understand. I remember the depths of grief um, that I had when Casey and I lost our first pregnancy, our first baby. Um, I felt totally alone in this world, I felt totally alone. Until someone I worked with said the same thing happened to them. And we were able to weep together and find comfort because we both knew what it felt like. We empathized together. Jesus knows us completely and he feels with us. He doesn't sympathize with us from afar but he empathized with us. There's a big difference between the two. Jesus shares our pain. He shares our weaknesses. He shares our temptations, our emotions, our stresses, our grief. All these things he shares with us. Great and tender is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this. I absolutely love This quote, he says this, Our high priest is quite at home with mourners and enters into their case as a good physician, understands the symptoms of his patients, 
When we tell our Lord the story of our inward grief, he understands it better than we do. He rightly reads our case and then wisely presents it before the majesty on high, pleading his sacrifice that the Lord may deal graciously with us. He is the ambassador between heaven, earth and heaven, who can plead the cause of your soul at the throne. This is Jesus. Jesus understands. Jesus is present. He is gentle. He is tender. He is with you and loves you always, even when you walk in these moments. So remember what this text says. This Hebrews text that we have a high priest. It doesn't say that we had a high priest in the past or that we're going to have some sort of high priest in the future. It says that in this moment, right now, today and forevermore, that we have a great high priest and his name is Jesus. So the question is, what am I supposed to do with this? What am I supposed to do with this? As we come, or as we close, let's come full circle and see what all of this, the humanity of Jesus, see what it all means for us right now today. And the point is this, that nobody knows you and loves you like Jesus does. Think about that for a second. Nobody knows you and loves you like Jesus does. So think of the questions from earlier. Remember those? Who's the most loving, encouraging, empathetic person? someone who knows you the most. These people are great. And they're great to have in our lives. But what if I told you these great attributes of these great people are just a shadow of the depths in which Jesus is for us? He loves us completely and fully. He encourages our souls, which is the deepest part of us, the things that we don't even know how to express. He encourages that part of us. He can empathize with everything that you are going through right now in your life. If these days are the hardest days of your life, he's with you. If these days are good time in your life, he's with you and everywhere in between. He knows us completely, and he still wants us. Think about that. He knows you completely. He knows what's going on up here. He knows what's here. And he still wants you. He still wants me. You have a high priest who is walking with you right now, and he understands. You are fully known by Jesus, even in your shortcomings and mess. Jesus had you on his mind when he was whipped, when he was beaten, when he was spit on, when he was punched, when he was carrying his cross, and eventually when he was nailed and hung on that cross. He had you on his mind. The motivation for Jesus to come to this earth, to live a fully human life, to resist temptation and to sin not, to suffer greatly and to ultimately die was for you and I to be with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for eternity. So as we close, the beautiful reality of what all this theology points us to is this. That there is a person on the other side of our worship and our prayers and our groanings. That there is a person who can empathize and feel what you feel in this moment. And that nobody knows you and loves you like Jesus does. He is good. 
He is trustworthy. He lived his perfect life and died the death that we deserve so that we could be with him in glory forever. Tell me a love that is greater than that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. God, thank you that you didn't leave us here, but you had a plan long ago, Jesus, that you were gonna come and you were gonna dwell with us. You were gonna feel what we feel. You were gonna empathize with us, but not only that, you were going to make a way by the shedding of your blood and the redemption that you give us, and the restoration and the newness of life, Jesus. Thank you so much that you willingly did that, you willingly suffered, that you willingly became a human because you wanted us. Let that forever blow our minds every single day. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.